Roger. And I'm Andrea, and this is Two Vets Update. Well, we've got a great show for everybody today. Our guest today is Matt Zeller. Uh, we'll introduce him a little bit later on, but he's an Army veteran, uh, former congressional candidate from upstate New York, and uh, founder of No One Left Behind. We're going to have a great conversation with him. We're looking forward to it. <laughs> and once you're done listening today, please give us a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app, whether it's SoundCloud or iTunes. Um, and please almost visit us on Patreon, where you can contribute to our mission of telling stories of service. And in return, we will make sure you get some sweet two vets of state swag. Sweet, sweet swag. Uh, also, a good time to let you know that we now have our own Twitter and Facebook handles. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Two Vets Upstate, uh, and that is either me or Andrea tweeting. Uh, Andrea, what are you eating or drinking today? So it's really funny um, because we're always, every time we record this, I'm not in upstate New York, even though I've been in upstate New York basically all of the times in between recording. <laughs> um, I did crush a ton of Stewart's ice cream. I was home last week, so. I am having a nine pin cider that I brought back from New York for you that we didn't get to drink when you were in town. So I have one left. Um, and depending on my willpower, uh, it's yours the next time you are in town. That's nine pin cider from Albany, New York, made with the apples from the mascot orchards in Kinderhook. They're literally my next door neighbors. Are they, so, are, they uh, are they paying you to say that? They're actually not paying me anything. We don't, we actually, we don't get, we ha don't have endorsements on the show when we're talking about these products, or these like products, these like beverages and, and food stuff. It's because we legitimately love them. Um, and we want you to love them too. So Roger, what's new with you? Uh, what's new with me? Uh, I just saw Hamilton, the musical last night, Uh big tip of the hat to Lin-Manuel Miranda for writing a really great show. How about you, Andrea? Yeah, and lots of upstate New York connections, too. Um, what is new with me? Um, I am heading this week to Chicago for the Pat Tillman Leadership Summit. So it's the annual convening of all past and new Tillman scholars. So I'm really excited to meet all the new Tillman scholars. Um, we'll be also repping service to school there. Um, and I was in D.C. last week. Um, where I meeting saw with you. different folks for SC. yeah yes we actually saw each other in person um so that's that's really what's going on and uh clearly watching the world burn from uh from Helsinki womp womp yeah yeah in our New York neck of the woods uh a couple important things going on the next couple of weeks in New York uh the 100th annual department convention of the New York American Legion is going on in Rochester from the 19th to the 21st of July. We're gonna have those details for you in our show notes. You should attend if you can. I wish I could, I wish I would be in town. Um, especially you post 9-11 vets in upstate New York. We know that you're there and uh, we want, uh, and we hope that you'll become involved in the American Legion and other veteran service organizations in upstate. And I'll just add to that. So I actually did an interview with the American Legion last week um, because I called out the New York American Legion for posting a very white male picture on their Twitter. That's right. Um, so American Legion is open to everyone um, who has served uh, in, I believe the American Legion is open to anyone who served in the, like, time, the time of war, which is basically all of us. While it's important that we form groups that support us as um, that reflect the diversity of the post 9-11 generation. It's also important that we build bridges across generations of veterans and really, really support these organizations in being what they could be to support, you know, future generations of, of veterans coming home. Um, so I didn't have an interview with the American Legion. I am a member of the American Legion. Um, so hopefully that should be coming out soon. Um, other resources for you. So there's a veterans resource there. On July 20th, that's this Saturday, 12 to 2 p.m. at Columbia Green Community College in Hudson, New York. Um, so that is uh, one of there's there are uh, 11 veterans resource fairs throughout the year in um, all 11 counties of the New York 19th Congressional District. So um, that's this one. This one's upcoming in Columbia County again. That's 
Saturday, July 20th, 12 to 2 p.m. at Columbia Green Community College. Um, what else is going on, Roger? Well, I got a little bit of an axe to grind, and I know that some people have, have grinded the axe uh, about a year ago when some of this legislation was making its way through Congress, but uh, the Department of Defense put out this past week restrictions on who can transfer their GI Bill benefits to their children. and essentially says that anyone with over 16 years of service cannot transfer their benefits to their dependents, so their kids, their spouses, whoever you uh, designate as a dependent. It will never stop rubbing me the wrong way that this distinction has been made, right? Because say you had, a, you had a child at the beginning of the war on terror. That child would be 16 years old today. They'd be starting the college visit, SAT taking, you know, college application process. It's not cheap. It's more expensive than it's ever been. It's fraught with uncertainty enough. And now the Department of Defense is pulling the rug out from under those service members who have served this country the longest. They're calling this a retention incentive. Most service members just assume that this was a right of service that we have earned. I don't think that the Department of Defense should get off on a technicality here. Say they're trying to influence retention and use the levers at their disposal to do that. Uh, I think obviously it's mostly to influence the budget. And yes, the promises that we make are expensive, but they are promises made. And again, shouldn't get off on a technicality of calling it a retention incentive versus what everyone assumes it is, which is a right. So anyway, that's, that's my ax there, uh, Andrea. I am a, of the personal belief that GI Bill benefits should be transferable for everybody throughout the extent of that benefits existence. So you should be able to transfer it to your kids, no matter where you are in your life, as long as you've served that's your right. I agree. I agree with you. And call and I do I definitely agree that calling it a retention tool is so disingenuous. It, it is about money. And it's also all super unfair to people who I know a lot of women in particular we have kids late. Right. So, you know, you may be past sixteen years and not even have dependents yet. Right. Or what is it? What's the signal it sends, right? Is this perverse incentive that says have your kids before 16 years of service. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to transfer your benefits to them or force you to make this decision at this arbitrary cutoff date of 16 years. And oh, by the way, veterans and service members aren't going to speak out on this issue at 16 years because they are afraid of losing their benefits. Because if DOD can take away a right that we all thought we had, you know, what's next? Are you going to take away your pension benefits for stepping out of line? So what else is going on? We have a very special guest joining us today on Two Vets at State. Our guest is Matt Zeller. So Matt Zeller is the co-founder of No One Left Behind. He's a Truman National Security Fellow and an adjunct fellow at the American Security Project. He's also the author of Watches Without Time, which was published by Just World Books in 2012. The book chronicles his experience serving as an embedded combat advisor with the Afghan security forces in Ghazni, Afghanistan in 2008. He has a bachelor's in government from Hamilton College and an MPA and MPA IR from the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. So everyone, please welcome Matt Zeller. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, I normally don't ask people to read the uh, degree portion of my byline, but I wanted to point out just how upstate New York I am. So uh, upstate. <laughs> so upstate, I didn't even leave it to go away for school. <laughs> hey, you can only be so far away from a Wegmans at any given moment. Oh, man, you're speaking my language. Yes! Uh, well, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about where and how you grew up. I grew up in uh, Rochester, New York. Um, my family's been in upstate New York basically since we helped take it from the Native Americans. Um, my mother's side of the family were actually kicked out of Scotland. And family lore has it that when they landed in Rhode Island sometime around the late 1760s, early 1770s, they were taken much uh, with the uh, colonial 
independence movement. And my great grandfather, nine generations ago was a continental, um, army officer under George Washington's command that at the end of the war was appointed one of the first federal judges in upstate New York. Um, and the family just kind of kept moving westward as, uh, as the settlers went, but then settled around the, uh, the Hornell area in the, uh, the 18, probably 1880s, 1890s, and have been in up, that part of upstate New York ever since. My father's side of the family is from Schenectady. Nice. So, uh, section, section five kid, where did you go to high school? I went to, uh, so I grew up in the city, uh, but I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to one of the really good prep schools in the suburbs. Oh, nice. I went to a school called Allendale Columbia. Yeah, that's right. It used to be like Harley Allendale Columbia or something like that. I think I, all right. So everyone thinks it's, it's one school, but it's two schools that are so uh, small. We have to combine it with each other to have the same sports team. Uh, and so everyone thinks they're playing <laughs> one school, but you're actually playing Harley, the Harley school, which is one school. And then the other school is the Allendale Columbia school. And because again, we're so small, we have to combine for like everything um, sports related. Uh, you just blew my mind. Sorry. Man. Are you a Bills fan? Even if in my father's household, you either had to watch and root for his team or you didn't get to watch the sport. And my dad is a diehard New York Giants fan. Um, I'm actually uh, a Dodger fan because my father is a Brooklyn Dodger fan. That's, that's slightly how, acceptable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my mother's side of the family are all Bills fans, so I was raised with, uh, with both fandoms as a loyalty. Oh, you can stay. So uh, what made you decide to join the Army, and um, what cert- stories exemplify your service experience? Uh, I joined the Army because of 9-11 and because of a sense of family and civic obligation. So I was a, uh, a sophomore at Hamilton um, on September 11th. Uh, I'll never forget, I was in a history of the Silk Road class that got out at 10.15 in the morning. And I was walking back across campus towards my dorm room uh, I decided to stop up at the mail center, which was in between the buildings I was traveling between and um, check my mail. And on the way in, there was this TV, like the, the old CRT TVs, you know, with, on a rolling like cart with a VCR underneath. They had, it, it was rare that they had TVs like everywhere back then. And so this was like a, a thing that kind of like struck me as odd that there was a TV set up and a crowd gathered around it. And I, I walked past and didn't give it much mind until I saw it was on ABC News. Peter Jennings was giving a report. It was split screen, and on one half of the screen said Pentagon, Washington, D.C. And I just spent the summer in Washington, D.C. as an intern. Uh, and I, I had gotten used to seeing the side of the Pentagon across the 14th Street Bridge, and it looked like it was on fire. And then the other half of the screen was World Trade Center in New York. And my, you know, we used to go to the city all the time, and so I was very used to seeing two towers. And what struck me as so odd was that one of the buildings wasn't there. And I stopped and I tapped this girl on the shoulder and I said, Hey, um, where's the other tower? And she had what I would later learn from my military service was a thousand yards stare on her face. She was in shock. And she just said, it's not there anymore. And, um, I said, what do you mean? It's not there. And then Peter Jennings just said aloud on the TV. I'll never forget this. We're getting reports now that the other towers about to collapse. And I watched it fall down on TV. And at that moment I knew that my life had completely changed forever because to me, it felt like our generation's Pearl Harbor. My grandfather, I'm currently standing in my house and I'm about five feet away from my closet where my grandfather's service uniform for the United States Navy hangs next to his father's army uniform for World War I, next to my great, 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 great grandfather's Union Army uniform from the Civil War. Wow. Um, this is a long way of saying it. When my, when my grandpa joined the Navy on December 8th, 1941, he went off to war and he was in battle of Midway and Guadalcanal and kind of did all the island hopping on the way up. I, um, I had this, you know, this family tradition that simply was compelling me to service at that point. Every single generation had been willing to rise up and answer the country's call when necessary. And I just kept getting the sense that I couldn't ever look my future children in the eye and know that I hadn't done everything that I was supposed to do as a, as a father and as a, quite frankly, as a zeller and a blades which are my two family names uh, I, that I was supposed to do to ensure them a better, a better future. I mean, it's even as citizens, if you think about it, it's in the opening lines of the constitution, right? We, the people in order to form a more perfect union, we're constantly compelled to make this a better place than we found it. 
And I couldn't think of a better way to do that in my life at that point than to go into service in my country the way that my, my ancestors had. And so I, I found it really hard to remain in school. And um, if my best friend was on, from college was on the phone, he'd tell you that several weeks later we went to a mall and he left me alone for 10 minutes. When he came back, I had enlisted. And that's pretty much what happened. Um, <laughs> it was about the first time I had really gotten off campus. You know, Hamilton's a small school that's literally on a hill. And there's nothing really much around it other than this little town. And the, the closest mall is this place called the Sanger Town Square, which is in New Hartford, New York. And um, it's about a 10 to 15 minute drive from Hamilton. And uh, there's just never really any reason to go down there unless you absolutely needed something. And we needed to get, I don't know, it was back in the day we needed to buy CDs. So we did go get, get down, like get some CDs or something. And he literally went off to the music store and I, I was only given a ride. And there was this army recruiter standing in the food court. His name was Sergeant Kevin Davis. And I walked up and I said, where do I sign? I, it, you didn't have to think about it. He was, he, he, I asked the sergeant later if it was that easy, you know, back then, you know, to get recruits. He said after 9-11, you know, we didn't really have to do much, much pitching. People were, were showing up to serve their country. And I was just part of that wave, I guess. Can you, do you have any stories that come to mind when you think of, you know, after you joined, things that really are unique to your experience in the Army? Uh, sure. Um, I'll just jump into what I do right now and how I got there. So the only reason I'm even alive talking to either one of you is because my Afghan translator, Janice, um, shot and killed two members of the Taliban who were about to kill me in a battle 10 years ago this past April. And, um, at the time he did it, it was my 14th day of the war. So I had been in Afghanistan for a whole two weeks. I had known the guy for 10 days, but we had met really only once 10 days prior in a receiving line when I got to my little outpost and the, the guys that we were replacing. Forgive me, Andrea. This is back before the military got a conscience and we allowed women to serve honorably next mm -hmm. to men in the same capacity. So this was an all male base. Um, but we, uh, a bunch of guys and we were in this big receiving line with all these Afghan translators and the old guys were telling us new guys, look, these are the people who are going to keep you alive for the next year. They're the most knowledgeable people we have here. They're not just your translator. They're going to be your eyes, your ears, and also your voice to the Afghan people and their voice back to you. And so you really need to trust them with your lives to really to the extent that you trust your weapon with your own life. And, um, I remember walking up to the guy saying, hi, my name's Matt. I said, hi, I'm Janice. That I look forward to working with you. And he said, me too. And that was it. The next time I saw him was 10 days later. We had been out on a patrol to assess um, a police outpost. We were going to see if it was there, if it was manned, um, if the people manning it had provisions, and if the locals who were living around this police outpost were happy with their government representation that they were receiving and the security that they had and were allegedly providing. And it was I remember when we got out to this place, I asked the police commander in his little outpost. It turned out there were about 30 police officers there. I asked the police commander how far, how much territory he controlled. And he said, I control 800 meters in a circle from this spot. And I said, why 800 meters? And he said, because that's as far as my weapons can shoot. And the spot moves when I move. Wow. Meaning he didn't control more than that little outpost. And wow. you know, this was year seven of the war, year eight. So, um, yeah, we, uh, we decide we were going to go back to our base and report this information. And we, we had to end up taking a route that no one had ever taken before. And unfortunately the maps and the satellite imagery that we had were from 1984. They were 24 years old. Jeez. And this is, I only bring up this to exclamate a point that we were given when we first arrived in the country. The commanding general of our task force stood up and said, I want you to understand something right now. This is not Iraq. Remember, this is 2008. So this is the height of the, the sort of sectarian violence in Iraq. And also the height of the surge into Iraq. Yeah. And at that point, the attitude of the U.S. government and the U.S. military was Iraq is the war we must win. It gets everything we need to win. And the way that it was summed up to us was in Iraq, we do everything we must. In Afghanistan, we do everything we can. And so we were told off the bat that the average, you know, time of a, a medevac was going to be one to two hours, which 
Oh You've ever gosh. had to be in that situation? If you can't put somebody on a helicopter within 10 to 20 minutes, you're talking about a flying purse. They told us that, you know, for close air support, again, calling for a jet to come and protect you. And in Iraq at that point was an eight to 10 minute response time from you calling it in Afghanistan, one to two hours. And the big one was they said that the QRF, the quick reaction force, in Iraq, the average time of response for a QRF at that point was 12 to 20 minutes, meaning somebody calls for help, and 12 to 20 minutes later, a convoy of vehicles shows up with reinforcements. And in Afghanistan at that point, the average response time was four to six hours. Jeez. We were being told essentially you were going to be alone and on your own, and our mission was to embed with the Afghan military and police and their outposts and basically to train and assist them in their battle against the Taliban in the hopes that one day we might be able to train a force that could replace our men and women and allow us to bring our military home and help Afghanistan achieve a, a, self, uh, a sense of, of basically um, self-determination that allows them to defend their own borders without foreign assistance. And it's a great and admirable goal, but it's probably going to take a lot longer than we initially anticipated. And I think we were just at the beginning phases of really learning that lesson. And so 2008 for me is the year I always argue is the year we lost the war or the year that the Afghan war really changed from being one in the minds of the American military to at least thinking of it as now a, a, a Vietnam, you know, I'm going to say a Vietnam-like stalemate. Yeah. And I'll explain why I believe that in a minute. But the longest short was we got lost on the way back because none of our maps and our satellite imagery were worth a damn. And we ended up having to stop and ask this local farmer for directions. And we sent our translator to this guy, Fareed, I had to talk to this, this, this farmer and he comes back and he says, yeah, the farmer says we're supposed to take this, this road up around this ridge line and it'll go down in this other farmer's fields and about the edge of this village. We just follow the road and then it'll be about five to 10 kilometers. We're going to hit the main highway. We make a left at the main highway. We're back at our base by dinner. We said, thank you very much and went on our way. And about three minutes later, the lead vehicle, which was about a football field away from us because, you know, we, had a lot of big spacing in between the vehicles because God forbid one vehicle hit an IED or roadside bomb. You didn't want the other vehicles to get caught up in the first explosion or what we feared were daisy chained or secondary explosions waiting for first responders. And so you had a pretty big distance between you when you're driving, but you always maintain line of sight. So you could at least see one vehicle ahead of, one vehicle ahead of you, one vehicle behind you. In this case, we only had three vehicles. We had 15 people total. And the first vehicle ran over a pretty large IED. And it was, I, it's a 36,000 pound vehicle called an MRAP, 18 tons. And this thing gets tossed up in the largest explosion I had ever seen in my life and thrown like with a Coke can. And when it landed, it didn't have an engine, which is gone. Jeez. And um, we instantly thought we had casualties. And my medic, um, a guy named Sergeant Scott Mason, jumped out of the back of my vehicle, which is the second in the order of March, without any personal regard to his own safety, and ran across what at that point would later become a very big battlefield to the back of this vehicle and started pulling people out of it, assessing their injuries, along with our special forces captain, a guy named Jason Dean, who's now a lieutenant colonel in Rhode Island, National Guard. He jumped out of the same vehicle, no, at no regard to his own personal safety, and just ran across the battlefield. and started assisting Scott with his medical assessment of the individuals in the vehicle. And thank God they all lived because the vehicle functioned as designed. But what ended up happening was, was we now had a vehicle that couldn't be driven. We had five people to include the translator, Fareed, who had been in that vehicle and had just survived the sixth IED blast he had ever lived through, had not been wearing a helmet, had not been strapped into his seat, so he had a horrific concussion. We wanted to call a medevac for these guys, and we got denied the medevac. So we decided at that point, we only had two drivable vehicles. What we were going to do is take a thermite grenade, which for the members of the audience who don't know what that is, it's something that when it burns, it burns so hot, it can literally melt steel into itself. We we're going to take a couple of these and throw them in the back of this now useless vehicle that's basically essentially a $1.3 million paperweight at that point. And what we're going to do is we're going to let these, these grenades destroy it because it has all this classified equipment inside that we can't let fall to the bad guys. So we don't have time to, to take it out with drills and, and screwdrivers and stuff. We just need to destroy it. And we're going to destroy it in place, and we're going to leave, and we're going to get a wounded back to our base. 
And so we radioed that plan up to our higher headquarters and the colonel who is responsible for the area that we belonged to, we were essentially opcon to them. We didn't actually belong to that unit. We just existed there in their battle space. He was supposed to be sending a QRF to us at this point. And he got on and he said, I'll never forget this. Don't, I don't leave behind monuments to our, our failure like the Soviets. If you don't come back with that vehicle, don't bother coming back at all. You were to remain in place and properly relieved. Jeez. And then call sign out. It was a die in place order. So what we did was, uh, within the remaining two vehicles, you only have really six personnel to work with, right? Because the two drivers have to remain in place, and the two turret gunners have to remain in place. So we put our only our sole Humvee up on a ridgeline as an overwatch position, but it didn't have full domination of the terrain because it had a ridge sort of up into its left behind it. So it was really the best of the worst-case scenarios. We kept my vehicle exactly where it was because we didn't know at that point what was mined or IED'd and what wasn't around us. We figured at least the pathway forward up into the first vehicle was not IED'd, but we couldn't be sure beyond it. So we just kept my vehicle in place. And then we took the six of us who were basically dismounted and start, put us up a big perimeter around this, this blown-up vehicle. In, in a completely exposed terrain, there's no cover, there's no concealment. It was just a big farmer's field on, the, on a sloping sort of hill down from this ridge on the outskirts of a village in which the enemy had a tree line to work with, a bunch of homes with huge mud brick walls that looked like big fortresses. I mean, we were just in a horrible kill zone. And we knew it was only a matter of time before we got attacked. And so long story short, an hour into waiting for the enemy to strike or for the QRF to come first, it got to be my turn to get out of the back of my, my foxhole and get in the back of my, my vehicle and take five minutes of, of an air conditioning break. We were kind of letting everybody on the perimeter do this every five to 10 minutes. One person would get out of their foxhole and run to the back of my vehicle and sit there for five minutes, get some air conditioning, grab some bottles of water, as many bullets as they can carry and get back to their foxhole and continue to sort of refortify the perimeter as everyone took a break. It got to be just randomly my turn and I, I got out of the foxhole and I got back into my vehicle and Farid sitting there with our medic again, Sergeant Scott Mason. And he's playing patty cake with doc because doc is doing everything he possibly can to keep Farid awake at this point. Cause Farid has this again, horrific concussion. And Farid looks at me and he goes, I have to go take a piss. I looked at, at, at doc and I said, you gotta go with him. And so they get out of the vehicle to go pee. And I realized that I was going to be back in this vehicle by myself and I don't want to be there. I figured I'd just get back to my foxhole. So I, as I was getting out, I, my hands were full. And I said, hey, Fareed, give me a cigarette. And uh, Fareed went to light a cigarette out in my mouth. And as he was doing that, Scott had his weapon raised, looking through his scope on the ridgeline because there was a guy on a cherry red motorcycle. And we had been warned earlier by the Afghan police that the Taliban in that area rolled around like a gang in cherry red motorcycles. And there was a guy on a cherry red motorcycle with binoculars and a radio on the ridgeline. And as Scott said, hey, isn't that one of There was this explosion. And the next thing I remember, I was, I was down on the ground and uh, it was on my left side. And it was the damnedest thing. Um, the dirt, the dirt in front of me was, was jumping. It was violating the fundamental laws of physics right in front of me. And I, I couldn't make heads or tails of it because no one had ever briefed me on Asian jumping dirt, but there it was. And I just couldn't figure out how dirt could jump. <laughs> and then I started to hear things. Cause I didn't realize I couldn't hear anything at this point. Like the world had just gone silent, but like hearing started to come back. And I started hearing what sounded like firecrackers going off over my head. And that's when I put two or two together. It wasn't Asian jumping dirt. You idiot. It's bullets. Someone's shooting at you. And this was the beginning of an hour-long firefight in which we figured we were probably having being engaged by at least two different mortar tubes and how they were walking in rounds. And when I finally got to talk to the QRF, which arrived officially four hours later, and asked the lieutenant why we didn't get helicopters, he told me at least they were able to watch us on a drone overhead and that they counted 50 Taliban versus the 15 of us. So how am I standing here talking to you today? Well, the reason why is now we're into this firefight. This mortar round landed close enough to me to send me flying into an, a ditch. And when I came to consciousness, I had been knocked out at that point three to four times in this battle. And I just figured, look, I'm out of grenades. 
I'm running low on bullets for my M4. I haven't heard from any one of my teammates in 15 minutes, like verbally, because we couldn't hear each other across the battlefield. It turned out our radios were being jammed by the enemy. We were completely surrounded and we were totally just, you know, I felt like we were clustered in little groups, but not in, in any way in communication the way that we were going to need to be. I had no idea what the status of our troops was around us in terms of their bullets, but I had to figure they were getting low with me. And I was doing the math. I was just like, look, I don't think we're going to survive this. And I remember looking at my watch thinking, it is 4.50 in the afternoon on April the 28th, 2008. I am 26 years old and I'm going to die today. I didn't know that when I got up this morning, but I'm going to die today. Jeez. And my parents are going to get the worst phone call of their life. And I'm never going to have kids. And I'm doing it because I'm fucking guarding a fucking paperweight because we don't leave behind monuments to the Soviets, I guess. And it just, it, it really pissed me off. But at that moment, I also, I have to admit, there are no atheists in foxholes. I, I started praying and I decided I was going to go out fighting and I stood up to shoot back. And when someone yelled, Zeller, don't shoot to your six, there's friendlies to your rear. And I turned and I saw these up-armored Humvees driving like bats out of hell from the village. And the lead vehicle pulls up right next to me with the driver's side door flinging wide open. And it's the sergeant from South Carolina named Mark Robinson, who looks at me, he goes, Hey, sir, I hear you're in a pickle. I brought a Mark 19 grenade launcher. Where do you want it? <laughs> and I pointed to the ridge line that we've been taking the bulk of the fire from. And I said, everything up there has got to die. And he turned and he patted his gunner, this uh, sergeant, he was a corporal at the time. He's now a sergeant named Felix Camacho, who's from the Bronx. I uh, was one of the uh, fighting 69th guys that we had with us. He said, come on, Camacho, let's go hunt. And I remember forget Camacho giving me this shit-eating grin as he charged the Mark 19 because they were there to save our ass. They must have felt pretty good to come in and rescue us because we wouldn't be here had they not showed up. And the translator that they brought with him was this guy named Janet. And Janice was in the back of that lead vehicle. And as I was at this point, completely forgetting my military bearing. And instead of turning back to monitor my field of fire, I turned to watch the Mark 19 and the three Humvees armored with them assault the ridgeline. And instead of watching my field of fire, and at that point I would have seen the two guys sneaking up on me, I'm watching this assault of the ridgeline. Well, Janice is in the back of the lead vehicle. And he's, doing his, he's, he's looking around the battlefield trying to assess what's going on when he sees these two guys coming for me behind me. And he left out of the vehicle that drove off ran across the battlefield and shoulder checked me back into the ditch I had been in and then fired his AK-47. And I felt at that point, I remember hitting the deck for the second time with my wind getting knocked out of me. I thought, well, this is it. I must have been hit. Cause I, it's an AK-47. It went off right next to my head. We don't have AK-47s. And they didn't bring the Afghan army with them. So <laughs> that must be it. I must be a dead guy. And I remember looking up at this Afghan man, and this old U.S. Army BDUs with this ill-fitting helmet that I would later learn was Indian Army surplus. And he looked down at me and I said, who the f- Can I swear? Hell yeah. Yeah. Can I? Yeah. I said, who the fuck are you? And he looked back at me and he goes, I'm Janice. I'm one of your translators. And he stuck out his hand. He goes, you're not safe. <laughs> and he pulled me up out of the hole. And I remember looking past him at that point to the bodies of the two guys that he had just shot and killed saving my life. And had he not been there to do that i would not be here talking to you right now and so the so what of all of this is not that i'm alive it's the miracle that is my brother janish and wari um about uh, the next morning i finally the battle ended shortly thereafter and we, we several hours later the official quick reaction force showed up and we had later learned was the three vehicles that arrived were the three other vehicles from our base. We were a very tiny base, six vehicles total, about 30 guys in total. They left the base under direct orders not to and came to save us. And had they not done that, we wouldn't be here right now. So those guys are as much heroes as Janice is. Yeah. But the next morning, I found Janice at, at breakfast because I didn't have a chance really to talk to him from that point forward. Like I was, we just, it was a crazy night of guarding this vehicle. So I found him in chow, at the chow hall at breakfast. And I, I walked in and I said, hey, man, I, I got to thank you for saving my life. And I realized at that moment, I didn't even know his name. I couldn't remember his name. And so he said, well, I am I'm Janice. And I said, yeah, I'm Matt. You know, look, man, I, I don't really know anything about you. I, you're as important now to my life as my parents were. Like, 
the fact that you've been alive 26 years on the other side of the world and I didn't know until like really yesterday, this is mind boggling to me. I need to know everything about you. I, I basically need to not let you out of my sight. And I got to know something first off, which is why in the hell did you save my life, man? And he looked at me and he, he said something to me that, you know, I look, I at this point, you, you think about this stuff when you're on a plane going to war, you know, are you ever going to be in this situation? How will you react to it? If, if it ever came down to something like that, who do you imagine saving your life? And like Charles, all the times you think about it, you never envision it's going to be your Afghan translator, right? It's, that wasn't on the top of my list. <laughs> and so this just didn't really compute for me. And I was trying to figure this guy out. And he looked at me and he said, he looked at me like I had asked him, why is the sky blue? <laughs> and he said, you're, you're a guest in my country. You came from the other side of the planet to here. You came from like where we're all trying to get to. Where everyone thinks is like, this is what civilization should be. This is the city on the hill. You came from there to here where, where things are really bad and have been since 1979 when the Soviets first sold it. And he would remember this because he was a year old when that happened. This guy has literally known nothing but warfare. He, he looked at me and he goes, you, you came here to try to make my country a better place. He goes, I am honor bound to take care of you. It is what I am supposed to do. You're a guest in my country. I have to take care of you. And then I said, well, you're a hell of a shot. I'm really glad you're on our side. I said, wait a minute, why, why are you on our side? You're like military aged in your Pashtun, right? And he goes, yes. And I go, aren't most of you guys like on the Taliban side? He goes, there are many Pashtuns who unfortunately fight for the Taliban, but many of us are also patriots. And then he goes, besides, my mother would never have let me join the Taliban, which was not an answer I was expecting. So I said, you got to explain that. What, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know nothing about Afghan. And I said, you're right. Teach me. And he goes, okay, first lesson, Afghan men can't fight without the blessings of their mothers. And I go, wait a minute, what? Are you telling me that everybody on the other side of yesterday's battle had mom's permission to be there? He goes, if mom is alive, probably. And I go, well, what makes your mother so much more enlightened than their mom's? And he said, simple, my mom can read and write. She's read the Quran for herself. She knows what they preach is bullshit. Wow. He, got, he got really serious with me. He looked and he goes, why do you think they burn down girls' schools? Yeah. They don't want the generation of women who are literate, who can think for themselves to grow up and turn to their sons and say, you can't go fight with them. They're not real Muslims because yeah. that's the end of their movement. And it was like a big light bulb went on my head. I go, I know how this guy's going to keep us alive. We're going to build schools for girls as much as we can because every parent has a universal desire regardless of their faith or their belief to see their children succeed yep. and and they, you can't help love your own progeny is what I, I really have come to believe is at least my experience as a parent I, I have not felt a deeper love with any other human being other than my wife you know than, than my, my daughter which is by the way the second life that I owe Janice for because she came around many years after I got home yeah. and and Janice reminds me that I owe him for many more lives at this point going forward because he says he wants more nieces and nephews. <laughs> but the point is, is I went and asked my, my boss immediately after this conversation. I went to him and he said, look, man, you're the intel officer on the base. Your job after yesterday's experience was you got to keep the rest of us alive. We went out blind. We need eyes and ears. and We're clearly not going to get it from others. We need it from to do it ourselves. What do you need to do that? And I said, I need that guy. And he became my... I mean, he was my guardian angel. He was my brother and my best friend. I, I didn't go anywhere without him in Afghanistan. And we were connected to HIP. And, you know, we didn't just, like, do work together. I mean, like, I, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity or the privilege to share with somebody the Beatles, Abbey Road, for the first time in their lives as an adult. But it's incredible, right? Like, this, they watch this guy listen to Led Zeppelin or to Jay-Z or to Dave Matthews band or to Coltrane and Duke Ellington. I mean, there was a whole world of music and culture he had never experienced before that he was just thriving to know more of and to sit and try to share jokes with each other and, and, and make each other laugh and realize it's a lot harder to translate a joke in your language over into someone else's. Sometimes the punchline doesn't deliver. Um, but then over here, like, you know, I remember we were looking at pictures once of America and he asked, I asked him, he said, is there one place you ever want to see in your whole life that you you've never been able to and he said yes i've always wanted to see the ocean he'd never seen an ocean and i just remember vowing in that moment i'm going to be there when this guy sees the ocean for the first time so <laughs> what ended up happening was a couple months later you know at the end of our tour nine months later i remember i, I pulled him aside and I, I said to him brother look i owe you a life debt i said it back in april i'm saying it now 
there's ever anything I can do to repay that debt you you just asked to include it. If you need someone to come and pick you up and take you away from this place, I will commandeer an aircraft to do it. I'm not worried about the jail time. It'll be worth it. You just tell me what to do and I will come and I will get you. And he looked at me and he said, brother, one day you are going to come back to my country as a guest, this time without war, and we're going to go and visit my home village in Nangahar and we're going to go swimming in the river and it is going to be wonderful and we will make Kabuli Palau, which is this great Afghan dish, and drink lots of chai, and it'll just be perfect. And we'll watch our kids play together. And I, I truly wish that we were going to be able to do that. But I think, honestly, my heart of hearts, I feared that what would transpire ultimately would, which was I got home a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of weeks later, I got home. And a couple of months after that, I got a phone call from him. We talked at that point, probably weekly. And he called to tell me that the Taliban had finally found him and that there was a bounty on his head and that he was being transferred off of our little outpost in Ghazni to a much safer base in Kabul because even the Americans there were not confident they could, they could continue to protect him and that it, he would just be safer off in Kabul and that quite frankly after five years on the front lines he had, he had earned a break and so I asked him I said do you want a visa they just came up with this visa program he goes no brother no I think I'll be fine in Kabul well Two years later, he calls me up and he says, brother, I think we need to apply for this visa. And would you sponsor me? And I said, sure. Naively thinking it would take maybe six months to a year. Two years later, we were still waiting for the visa. And it's now summer of 2013. And I was back actually at Syracuse. I was attending the Entrepreneurial Boot Camp for Veterans with Disabilities program, which is one of the best mm-hmm. programs vets out there yes. um, should look into. It's, it's incredible. For me, it was life-changing. Yeah. I was hand to God sitting in the only um, instructional block that we got on nonprofits, which was not my even vision at that point. I was there because I wanted to start a a battery company making batteries out of carbon nanotubes. Um, And I had no idea, no interest in starting a nonprofit, but I remember sitting in in a block of instruction taught by Jake Wood, who is one of the founders of team Rubicon and Mike Irwin, who's from Syracuse and is a founder of team red, white, and blue. Mike's also a West Point alum, so he did his upstate New York education fully <laughs> upstate as well. Although that depends, I guess, where you draw the line at upstate. We can debate that later. Um, <laughs> we frequently do. <laughs> but um, they were talking about their experience founding nonprofits. And serendipitously, as I'm sitting in this block of instruction, my Facebook messenger pops open, and it's Janice, and he says, Brother, we just got word that all the translators on our base are being laid off in October due to the drawdown. And we're going to have to, I guess, make our own way. But brother, the Taliban has a hit team. They lived outside this base for two years waiting for me. I haven't been home in two years. Um, if the moment I leave, I'm a dead man. Like you got to give me this visa by October or we're done. And so at that point, I, I didn't know what else to do. I remember calling up a, one of my army brothers and saying, kind of briefing him on the plan I was about to take. And he said to me, he goes, you know, you get, you could run afoul of a lot of people. You're still a reservist. You know, you're basically, your plan of action is to embarrass the government into doing the right thing at this point. I said, I don't know what else to do. No one will answer my call yeah. at the state department. No, no one seems to care about this visa. I can't seem to get it through the damn bureaucracy. This guy is a hero. He's going to get killed. He needs to be. And my, the guy is certainly goes, no, dude, I get it. Janice, we got to get him here, but just be prepared. There could be consequences. And so I, I reached out to a friend of mine who is a producer at the now defunct Huffington Post Live. And they were agreed to do a segment where Janice called in from Kabul and I called in from DC and kind of told our story. And I shared that segment with a number of people and it ended up generating enough press interest that Yahoo News and Change.org both kind of came to me and said, we want to do something big with this. And so Yahoo said, we're going to put on the front page of Yahoo on a Friday globally and try to tell this story and see if we can't get some movement. And Change said, we're going to run a petition for you to see if we can't get some signatures to help influence and get Congress on board. And going into that Friday in September of 2013, the, the petition had a couple hundred signatures, and we really didn't have much traction on the story. And there, you know, my members of Congress locally, along with the now dear departed Louise Slaughter and um, former member of Congress Dan Massey, Dan had actually been my TA at Syracuse. Um, so uh, I, I had a personal in there, and Louise and I had campaigned together. Um, she became a dear friend on the campaign, but she was also my congresswoman since I was two. Um, so like, um, no, no, since I was four. She got it in 86. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I, 
I had an affinity toward Louise just from growing up as her constituent um, for a number of years. I, 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 I called their staff to see if they wouldn't be helpful. And Senator Tim Kaine and, 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 um, uh, and others down in Virginia, but you know, it was still slowly making its way through the bureaucracy and not a lot of attention. And then the story on Yahoo went live on a Friday. And by Sunday, the petition had over a hundred thousand signatures and Sunday evening, Janice called me to tell me that his family and his family had been issued visas and that they were coming to America. And we thought we had won, except we forgot that the enemy gets a vote. And so here was, here's the thing is the enemy saw all the coverage on Janice. They saw yeah. the Yahoo article. And then they saw all the subsequent articles reporting he got the visa. And the Taliban at that point, who had been trying to kill this guy for five or six years, decided that their only recourse was to call the embassy with a throwaway cell phone and go, hey, this guy actually works for us. Click. And they did that. And the embassy's knee-jerk reaction was to, re- was to revoke his entire family's visas along with his. Ugh. And at that point, it was, it was just nuclear war. I remember calling a buddy of mine from some Max 12, who I graduated with, who was senior guy at the state department. And I said, Hey, listen, you all aware about what about how angry I'm about to get. And he goes, no, this got briefed all the way upstairs this morning. I tried to explain that you're not going to take no for an answer and good luck. And I remember I called the, the head of consular affairs for the state department at the time named Karen King. And I said, Karen, I'm not trying to be rude, but you have to understand this is my brother. I owe him my life. I think there's been a great mistake. Please just reissue his visa. If he does anything wrong, I'll take the hit and go to jail with him. Like I'll vouch for him. I'll tie my legal liberty to his. I, I, he's got to get here. They're going to kill him. They're going to make an example out of him. And she said, for reasons of national security, blah, 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 blah. And I said, Karen, I'm that pissed off set that doesn't go away. I'm going to get my guy here. It's just going to be how painful it is for you to say yes. Make it easy on yourself and say yes today. But she wouldn't. And so at that point, I, I kind of went nuclear. I called CBS News and I got them interested to the point that they sent Jan Crawford out to film me sort of complaining about this on national television. I got a number of members of Congress then really involved. I called Congresswoman Slaughter personally and she that she'd get to the bottom of it. And she did. She called a guy named Pat Kennedy, who was the Undersecretary of State at the time. And Pat was uh, cashed in a favor for me and uh, called the CIA and had Janice picked up twice in Afghanistan. They polygraphed him twice. He passed with flying colors. And they reissued him and his family's visas, and they were put on the next plane to America. And by October 29th, 2013, I was there to greet him at the airport. And Congressman Maffei was gracious enough to come over along with the CBS News crew to film this whole reunion. And so there's video of that online. And that's kind of where everybody thought the story would stop. And I'll be honest, that's where I thought it would stop. But I really argue that where it was just making this big pivot because the cameras went off. And I turned to Janice and I said, okay, brother, I don't know where you're going to live long term, but until you do, you're staying with me or we'll get you a hotel room close by, whatever you're more comfortable with. And have a big place in DC at the time. And uh, I, you know, we're going to figure this out. I'm in this with you, but for the meantime, let's go get the rest of your luggage. And he turned and he pointed to these four small rolling suitcases, the size of carry-on bags. And he said, brother, these are the only bags that we were allowed to bring. And I was, I was shocked because they were tiny and they had to be like under 50 pounds each. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, this is the policy. Only one bag per person had to be under 50 pounds and fit in the overhead flight bin. And I was apoplectic because I can fly across just like you across the United States for two bags for free. Why can't this guy do the same thing coming from Afghanistan? And so I turned to yell and complain about this to who I inevitably assumed was going to be the government's refugee resettlement person. Hmm. And what I learned at the airport was that there was no program to get the guy. It was incumbent upon me to help him find a place to live and to furnish that home and get him a car and a job and help his family get his kids enrolled in his school and his wife into English classes and explain to him that taxes are paid on April 15th. And this is how a credit card works. And this is why you need a bank account. And this is what your social security number is. And this is your insurance plan and all the things that no one was going to teach him all on my shoulders. And so I remember running to the CBS news crew and I said, can you believe this? And they asked, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I guess I'm going to start a GoFundMe page. Because I figured the first thing we needed to do is raise the guy some money for rent. And I was hoping maybe we'd raise maybe a month or two. So three days later, Halloween, this is important, I'm out at Target buying him 
you know, linens, towels, dishware, you know, through the grace of friends and family in the DC area, I've been able to furnish a modest two bedroom apartment that I found down the road from where I lived. And what he needed now are just basic life provisions. And so I was out buying him this stuff and I was on the way back and I figured I'll stop at the bank and just see how much money the account might've taken in from the GoFundMe page. And there was $35,000 in the account from complete strangers. And I was floored, absolutely floored. And so I, I, I drive back to his house and there's a line of children coming out of his apartment building out in the parking lot in costume. And as I'm walking up, I'm thinking, Oh my God, I'm a bad friend because I haven't told him what Halloween is. And so as I walk up, there's this line of kids out the door from his apartment. And he's standing at the top of his stairs with a wad of $1 bills, all the money he has in life. And per kid, he's given out $3 per child. And I look at him and go, brother, what are you doing? And he looks at me and goes, brother, you never told me you had so many beggars in America. But why are they children wearing such funny clothing only asking for candy? <laughs> and I said, Janice, I'm really, I'm a bad friend. This is a holiday called Halloween. You got to close up shop, man. You're in the most popular house on the block. There are parents in the parking lot, like doing wardrobe changes, sending their kids back in for twos and threes. <laughs> First lesson of being an American, you're out of candy tonight. Turn off the lights. You're not home. Come in sit down, have some tea with me. I've got great news. And I said, look, don't worry about the money you just gave away because all your problems are solved. The American people have stepped up and I pulled out this check for 35 grand and I tried, I handed it to him. I said, this is a gift from the American people. And it's in thanks in exchange for your eight years of frontline combat service. And that's not nearly enough to cover our nation's debt to you, but it'll at least cover your first year of food and rent. So I want you to take this money. I want you to worry about getting a job for a while. I want you to just put your feet up, take a deep breath, relax, enjoy your family, play with your kids and sleep easy at night, knowing for the first time really in your life that no one is actively trying to kill you who can actually get to you. And he thought about taking this money for maybe half of a heartbeat. And he <laughs> looks at me and he goes, brother, I can't take this. And I wasn't prepared to hear that because there's not a refund button. I didn't know what he wanted me to do with the money at that point. So I, I said, brother, I, what would you have me do with this money? And then he got really serious. And he looked me in the eye and he said, well, what about his son and Latif and Jamshid and Maiwand and Habib? He was naming off all the other translators from our base in Afghanistan. So what about them? And he goes, well, don't they deserve to be here too? And I said, you have a really good point. They do. And he said, well, maybe we could start an organization to do for them what you've done for me to help them get a visa. And then when they get here, greet them at the airport and, help them find a place to live and furnish it. And then eventually get, I got him a car and a job. And I kind of acted as his first friend in America for the first year in his life. And so that foundation, which we later named no one left behind was started on Halloween in 2013. And we're now almost five years later, we have offices in 10 cities across the country and we've helped save over 5,500 lives. Um, meaning we've helped get them their visas. When they arrive here, we greet them at the airport. We welcome them home like returning war veterans because that's who I believe they are. Um, it's funny, actually, Andrew, you mentioned the American Legion. The American Legion and the VFW were actually, we have um, right, right now before their national conventions, I'm actually flying to Kansas this weekend to um, basically advocate for this at the VFW national convention. We have... Uh, wow we have uh, amendments before each of the conventions to include in their membership now um, foreign-born veterans because even currently U.S. green card holders can't join the Legion or the VFW. And there's a whole generation of Americans who are green card holders and veterans. Like They served in the U.S. military. They have honorable discharges, but they can't even join the VFW or the Legion. Yeah. We're trying to at least get them to acknowledge people like Janice as another type of veteran, which is an honorary veteran. Um, which is yeah. veteran status, the type of veteran status that we've bestowed on Bob Hope and, and Steve Fisher and, and others. So, I mean, th- this mission has become life transformative for the both of us. It's something we both do, you know, with basically every fabric of our time. Um, it's what we think about 24 seven, but I also have to tell you, it's, it's been selfishly and personally for me, the most um, healing thing that I've done since coming home from the war. Um, I, I can't think of a more meaningful activity that I've been in personally involved in than this. Um, it really is the best part of my job is being able to watch uh, a turp or a vet get off the, the plane 
and, and get to be greeted by their American veteran who they haven't seen in five or 10 years and watch that reunion. And for the both of them to realize that there's a lot of healing in that moment, there's a lot of closure, but there's also a wonderful new beginning in that there's, this is really a promise kept uh, and that that's what this country is all about. And so you asked me at the beginning, can I give you an Army story that was meaningful to me in my service? I can't think of one that's more meaningful than this because everything I was taught in the Army about leadership and selfless service and honor and integrity and duty and personal courage, all of it, right, got summarized, I think, in that story. I experienced every single facet of it. And that, to me, was the back, you know, if there's, there's one backbone of my military experiences, it's been living this because the last thing I, my commanding officer ever said to me when I took off my uniform for the last time and went in the IRR, when I went on the bench, is he said, do you know what your responsibility is now that you're taking a knee? And I said, get, get fat to drink beer and make a joke. And he said, no, just because you take off that uniform doesn't mean that you you forget your primary responsibility and that it's that it's your job to take care of soldiers. You just don't, you don't abdicate that because you take off the uniform. And the only way I can think of right now that I can best serve soldiers is by making sure that my brothers and sisters who go off into future conflict have the exact same advantage that I did, which is a person like Janice being able to stand next to them and if necessary, keep them alive. And I'll tell you what, if we fail to keep this promise now, it's not Vietnam this time, the enemy actually has cameras. They're recording what happens to people that we leave behind in real time yep. and putting it up on YouTube for the world yep. to see. And the message is simple. If you partner the Americans, they will use you and abuse you and abandon you to be killed by the very people that we asked you to help us stand with. And if nothing else, if you want to think of this in purely selfish terms, keeping this promise is, not, is an insurance policy against that. And I would rather do anything in my power to make sure that we keep Americans alive in future conflicts. And if that means having to, you know, bring as many of these Afghans and Iraqis who serve with us over here as possible and make sure that they get set up with at least the basic provisions to make their way to the American dream. I think that's something that we all should be able to support. In light of, um, in light of all of that and, like, thinking about keeping our promises, there's been a lot of um, involvement of the military now. It's been a lot of um, changing in immigration policy, um, calling ICE on... Um, calling ICE on people at military bases, canceling the, the MAVNI program. Um, what kind of effect do you think these will have? I think they're horrible. I think it has a detrimental effect. I've seen it firsthand. Um, you know, when the first immigration ban went out in the first week of the Trump presidency, someone in, in the administration was gracious enough to send us a copy of it the Tuesday before it was signed. And, we were able to organize a response as a result so that when we knew it was coming on Friday, we had basically all cylinders ready to fire with a pretty vociferous response. We led a 30,000 person protest at the White House. We funded and basically fed and kept a army of lawyers, volunteer lawyers going at Dulles airport for the better part of a month. That was awesome. Um, yeah, no, we, we got, we took our inspiration from our friends at the international refugee assistance project. Um, who did it out at JFK. Um, yeah. Yeah. We actually sent our, our, our um, director of resettlement at the time, her name was Micah, uh, out. She basically lived at Dulles for three weeks. I mean, we had this whole thing ready to go, and we saw our clients impacted by it. And it, mo most directly, there's a guy named Munsir who now lives in Rochester, New York. He's an Iraqi. And Munsir was on his way out of Iraq, having waited five years for his visa. He had just been issued it. They had done everything that these people do when they get their visas. They had sold the home, their home. They had sold all of their earthly possessions. They had said goodbye to all of their relatives. They had lived in hiding for as long as they could possibly endure. And then they got on planes to America thinking, we're, we've escaped. We've made it. We're never going back there. That part of our life is done. And he got as far as Turkey because he was sitting on the plane, not in the terminal, on the plane, on the runway, taxi to take off second in line or whatever to leaving. When the plane turned around, took him back to the airport, Turkish police came on the plane, put him and his family, including his kids, in handcuffs, took them off the plane and informed them that they were being sent back to Iraq. Because it turned out that in their zest and zeal to enact this stupid, unthought-out policy, they had included all the translators from Iraq in it. Every single one of them. Yeah. And it looked like it was, there was a question of whether or not the Afghans were uh, applied as well, because there was some, there was, there was some rumor that DHS was broadening the policy that Trump had actually screwed the announcement and that it was supposed to be a much broader list that would be announced on Monday. So Monday morning, we all watched breathlessly and Secretary Kelly 
now chief of staff of the White House, Kelly, former General Kelly of the Marine Corps, got up and gave his first press conference to DHS secretary and much to our relief, issued a mea culpa and said that the translators would no longer be on the list. But that experience changed the dynamic for the Afghans and the Iraqis. It's very rare that you meet one now who is ardently pro this administration. They're very weary of it. They've seen the crackdowns in other, in other immigrant circles. They fear that they could be next. Um, there's, you know, there, I keep telling them that it would be, I think, a line for most folks that, that wouldn't be tolerable. I know for many of my friends who are on the other side of the aisle, they have said, you know, if there's, I've, I've got a Marine buddy of mine who I get into a lot of arguments with over, you know, texting. And one of the things he said, dude, if anyone ever comes to try to take the Terps away, I'll be right there with you in arms to protect them. He's like, that's fine. That that's a bridge too far for me. And so I, I, I hope that they're not going to crack down on this population, but I will tell you that when you go after a program like Mavni, that has a detrimental immediate impact because I've personally yep. helped enlist four people into that program all of whom were former Afghan translators, all of whom now serve with distinction, two of them who are now U.S. citizens. The godfather of this program, a guy named Steve Miska, he was an army colonel in Baghdad during the worst parts of the secretariat fighting from about 04 to 07. He, um, he was the first person to set up an underground railroad, getting translators out of Iraq through Jordan. And uh, he... Um, a couple of the guys he got over are now U.S. citizens and full members of the United States military. I met not two weeks ago a former Iraqi translator who is currently an Army lieutenant. That's the American story we are all proud of. That's the American yeah. story we all should be proud of. And that's what the MAVNI program does. It takes the people who are, in some cases, our most vital assets and transitions them into citizen soldiers, which is the ideal. I think we've, every side of the aisle is always upheld as something that should be uh, you know, looked up to and aspired upon if that is a path that you want to pursue. It's not maybe for everybody, but if it's done, it's done with honor and respect, I think, from both sides. There's a, a, a reverence given regardless of political affiliation, religious affiliation, any affiliation. The Madney program, I think, is a hallmark of that. I, I can't think of a better metaphor for the United States in terms of a governmental program that takes people who have already done so much for us, in, in this guy's case, and helps them achieve the status of citizenship and continue to serve. They're, they're not even looking to take in any way. They're always looking to give, which is a hallmark of, of, of the translators that I work with, was that they always look to try to give their best back. Last question for you before you wrap it up here, Matt, is what is next? Obviously, we've got midterm elections coming up. We've got, you know, a, a big presidential election after that. And it sort of feels like, you know, we're in a very angry, spiteful time, especially as it pertains to immigration policy. So how do people stand up for what's right in these trying times? How do, we, how do we meet this moment and then how do we move beyond it to make sure that stuff like this doesn't happen again? Um, a couple of ways. First off, vote. Uh, everyone says they always want to thank a veteran. The best way you can thank a veteran is vote. There's not a <laughs> single better way to thank a veteran than please go vote. Literally, it's what people wear the uniform for. The second I think I, I would say is I think we all got to try to live up to that ideal I talked about earlier. We the people in order to form a more perfect union. It's the most important sentence in the whole document because it constantly compels us to make this better. We've never been told we're supposed to rest on our laurels and stop trying. We're always, you know, the, the idea of manifest destiny, regardless of its horrible connotations of what it did to the, the population of the Native Americans is this idea that we were supposed to be achieving a higher ideal, that we were supposed to be reaching better than ourselves, that it was our destiny to go out and be great. That, I think, can be done now. I, I, the wonderful thing about human progression is that we, we're, we're also supposed to be trying to get better as a society. I mean, I think we see that in, in terms of historical progression of societies. For the most part, it seems to have been a betterment and advancement of culture and of, of, of living amongst one another and being able to live with one another's differences. And I think that's where maybe America has been 
more successful than most others is that we truly are a big melting pot. And I think that's what makes us so wonderful. I'll give you a wonderful example of what I'm talking about. This past weekend, my wife took me to see this Colombian pop star named Juanes. I've never listened to Colombian pop music in my life. <laughs> I don't speak Spanish. Um, I couldn't understand most of what was being sung, but I loved every moment of it. And my, it was just a, it was just this wonderful American moment where you had, I, I can't think of another country where you have this cross section of cultures who all come to a concert just to explore and enjoy this beautiful music being played and doing it so openly and freely without sort of any reservation and, and, and fear, just enjoying the moment and being free to live their life as an, as a free citizen of this country. That was awesome. And I think if, the, the tragedy of the Trump administration is its divisiveness. It's not just the abhorrence of some of its policies. It's, it's divisiveness. It's how we've gotten away from the idea of out of one many. We now seem to have factionalized to the very degree that our founding fathers warned against. And that whole saying of united we stand, divided we fall has a lot of truth to it. And I think we as veterans have a responsibility to share that with the American people because we've lived in and fought in and in some cases died in countries where they have forgotten to stand as one and they have been divided. And we see what division ultimately engenders and it's terrifying. And we have an obligation to ensure it doesn't come home to our shores. And so I think we have an obligation to, in some places, try to be a voice of reason because I think well, that if there's one privilege that there is to a veteran is that society has somehow bestowed this idea or this mythos that we're to be listened to above others in some cases. I don't think that's necessarily true or even a good thing, but if it's being given, then why not use it to a, dis a, a good advantage, a beneficial purpose, which is we ought to be able to speak truth from experience. And we ought, I think we have an obligation to try to reason with people to really consider just how important it is to go out and vote and to be involved and engaged in the political process. Um, if nothing else, we'll get a better and informed and more engaged citizenry. And it, it, democracy can only thrive from that. Yeah, Matt, thanks. Thanks so much for sharing your stories with us. I mean, I look forward to having you on again here in a future episode. Uh, you're a great man. We are all very lucky that you're alive and we're thankful to Janice as well. And uh, you know, thanks for being a role model uh, for really all veterans and, and all human beings. Well, thank you for joining us today and for the reminder that we always have to continue to serve and, and stay engaged and, um, you know, look, looking forward to what comes next and, um, you know, serving with you and in, in Truman and Best for American Ideals. I'm looking forward to it as well. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Sounds yeah, that's good. all we got for Two Vets Upstate this week. It was a real pleasure to be joined by Matt Zeller. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And until next time, we will see you around New York. All right. Take care, everyone.